us without them. We are here today to talk about the song Seven Sisters. Um, just as a general warning, uh, this, this song deals with some difficult topics, uh, including self-harm and suicide. Um, and so be warned uh, that towards the end of the episode, we'll be discussing those parts of the song. Um, and if you need any uh, one to reach out to and talk to, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 988 on your phone. So, <laughs> let's start with this just cheery beginning to the song, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, can... I mean, is there anything to talk about musically, really? I yeah. Mean, kind of, yeah. So, coming out of the end of Disaster Tourism, mm-hmm. the last part of that song is more or less in the key of A minor. Uh, with an emphasis on um, a C natural being the last kind of most resonant pitch you hear. So in an A minor chord, that's that C. And then right as we get the beginning of Seven Sisters, you get a half step below that emphasized. And then that kind of just hangs out. And eventually, on an E minor chord is the first place we get to. But as with everything else on this album, that half step shift does a lot of work for shifting the emotional tone. And so it creates this sense of like, of descent from the track before it. uh, And also unresolution because that B natural, that is the the drone at the beginning of seven sisters feels like Mm. a leading tone, almost like the end of disaster tourism might Resolve from up to C major, which it definitely does not do. Um, (laughs) But it sets the stage for some, some musical expectations. So it's an interesting beginning. And, and totally it's interesting. It's this very synthy moment, right? Yes, it is. If they're not using an actual synth, I I believe they are. It may be like a, a phaser, pedal or something cool going on it's it's yeah definitely it's a unique timbre there's nothing else i can think of on the album that has quite that sound to it um yeah not quite definitely but it definitely it definitely flows directly out of disaster tourism there's no there's no separation between the two and there won't be any separation well no there is I take that back. There is a silence at the end of Seven Sisters before the Soviet starts. But Mm -hmm. I I think that Seven Sisters and the Soviet are really closely tied together, both lyrically and musically. So agreed. we can introduce some of those ideas this episode. We'll talk about the Soviet next time. Um, But even though there's not that same musical continuity where where there is a little bit of a a breath between the two, I think the music flows very much as one unit from these two tracks agreed and we'll talk about this in more depth as the song goes on but it's a really interesting so i think it was in the first in the overview episode steven you talked about how this album is so danceable like there's yeah. a very dancey beat and this song has a very dancey beat which for the longest time the heavy weight of the lyrical content and the tone of the lead guitar mm-hmm. I, like 
I didn't think of it as a danceable song, but it really is. Like, there's a groove to this whole oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And the, exactly. <laughs> like the bass line's kind of funky, and then so mm-hmm. funky. Mm-hmm. You get like you. Could, it's easy to imagine like some indie band with like four people that all sing at the same time, like chanting that guitar lick, but as like a little bit of verbal filler somewhere. Yeah, yeah, like na 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 na. Yeah, na. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, it's two thousand eight MTV. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then the lead guitar tone is so open. Like this is one of the songs that feels the most open to me. Like mm-hmm. as if they recorded Mike playing in a cathedral yeah right and yeah it, that just creates this very interesting it's it's not dissonant but it's there's a strange effect that it has on me as a listener anyway mm-hmm. um where it feels like a church in a way i don't know why yeah. it does that for me but it sure. does um yeah and well we from, a, lyrics. from a from a tonal standpoint that opening b Mm-hmm. that just drones at the beginning is it is the fifth of of an E minor chord which the song spends about half its time hanging out on and then it's the tonic of, of B minor which it also spends half its time on and because the song does so much alternating between those two chord spaces that fifth of the top creates this sense of just kind of hovering open-endedness and the song's totally ambiguous it actually there's the only pitch that would separate it from being either an e minor or b minor is whether it has a c natural or a c sharp in it and depending on what moment in the song both of those notes are used and so interesting it's got this kind of liminal quality to it that way too which again it bleeds into some of that openness feeling like a a liminal Mm -hmm. space like we are not defined by whatever space we're setting up here it's it's ambiguous in a very fun way that's cool yeah but the 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 reverbs and the delays on the guitars add to that open-ended big cavernous room feel which really goes towards some of the stuff we've been hinting at the sensation of movements throughout Mm -hmm. this. Like this is the beginning of a new, there's a tonal shift in the album at this song. I think leaf kind of got us there in disaster tourism as well, but this is where things really take a turn Um, and towards the epic Mm. too, in in a way this, Mm -hmm. the song has some epic feelings to it. And then even more so into the, into the Soviet. Yeah. So, Joel, do you want to read us the first verse of this thing? He made the world a grassy road before our bare wandering feet. He made the world a grassy road before our bare wandering feet. Then crushed the stones into the softest sand between our toes. Then crushed the stones into the softest sand between our toes. But we're wondering where to sleep. Oh, but clever words on pages turn to fragments, circles, points, and lines, and they cover them like carpets with graceful, meaningless, ornamental designs. Mm. So the the first two lines are a reference to a poem by uh, W.B. Yeats, um, who was a turn of the 20th century Irish modernist. Mm. 
poet. Most I think most people know his poem uh, "Lita and the Swan." Like if you ever mm. took a British uh, a survey of British literature, chances are you know that you read that poem uh, at some point. Um, Which I've got so, the po- it's a short poem that this is a short. reference to. Yeah, I've got I'm, that yeah. pulled up if we want to read that. Um, now, sure. yeah, I'd wait. love to hear it. I never knew that was a reference. I always felt like they probably were quotes from something, and I thought they were mm-hmm. really beautiful opening lines, but I never knew what they were from. This song and the Soviet both have a lot of um, unattributed, uh, as as Aaron plainly said, at least he said it in the Chicago show anyway. I used to plagiarize a lot. Um, <laughs> this, this song, you could argue, has, has a couple lines like that, but. Um, The direct reference is uh, the poem, The Rose of the World, which goes, Who dreamed that beauty passes like a dream? For these red lips, with all their mournful pride, mournful that no new wonder may betide, Troy passed away in one high funeral gleam, and Uzna's children died. We in the laboring world are passing by, amid men's souls that waver and give place, like the pale waters in their wintry race, under the passing stars, foam of the sky, lives on this lonely face. Bow down, archangels, in your dim abode, before you were, or any hearts to beat. Wary and kind, one lingered by his seat. He made the world to be a grassy road, before her wandering feet. So, the poem is, uh, we know, is addressed to a woman that uh, that Yeats was in love with, um, mm-hmm. named I have it here, Maud uh, Maud Gone. Uh, I think that's how you say her last name, G O N N E. Um, and I mean, it's it's interesting because the you know there's the line, um, "Who dreamed that beauty passes like a dream?" But there is, he does, Aaron does have a line uh, where he says, she vanished like a dream. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's interesting about that is that in in this poem, Yeats is doing a very modernist kind of thing. He's, um, so the modernists, for, for those who, you know, are unfamiliar, they were very much against sentimentality. I mean, we, we mm. saw that with... Um, uh, with T.S. Eliot and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, even though it's called a love song, like it's very <laughs> much anti-sentimental in a lot of ways. And so Yeats in the first stanza, first two stanzas of this poem is questioning the idea that that beauty is like some kind of dream, right? He's essentially bringing up, uh, even though he doesn't mention her by name, this reference to Troy passing away in one high funeral gleam is a reference to Helen of Troy. Right, who in the Iliad is, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world, right? The face that launched a thousand ships, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, well, you know, her beauty brought about the ruin of Troy, right? It brought (laughs) it brought about this immense war that uh, you know, in in the ancient world, like sort of captured the imagination as like the like the original world war, the war that engulfed the entire world in, in flame, right. Um, was caused by beauty. Um, and I believe, I don't know. I think the Usna's, the Usna reference is to something in Irish folklore, but I don't know the exact story, but, but I, I believe it's a, a similar kind of idea, 
right? That like it has something to do with beauty bringing about uh, destruction, right? Rather than beauty being like a dream, right? This kind of sentimental uh, image. Um, and then the you know the lines that are lifted from the poem and and put at the beginning of this song are the final two lines and. I was reading something about the poem um, earlier today, and a lot of uh, Yeats's colleagues and and editors and people that he would, you know, sort of uh, uh, revise his poetry with, wanted him to cut this last stanza altogether mm, for the same for the same reason that they thought it was too sentimental. That it introduced this i this idea of like hearts beating and you know, the world, a grassy road, that there was something that was too touchy feely about that, that it didn't, it didn't fit with the, like it lowered the quality of the poem to -hmm. have this, uh, stanza in there, um, which I, (laughs) I think is interesting, but the, um, one biographical note that I read about this is that, uh, Maud and, uh, Maud gone and, and Yates used to go on hikes together. Um, that was oh. something that they used to do and, and enjoy. And so the reference to the world being a grassy road before her wandering feet is likely just a direct reference to something that Yates enjoyed doing with her. And again, like there's some, a kind of sentimentality there um, because it's a reference to this thing that he's like nostalgic for um, in a way. So that's that's the poem. We can – we can talk now uh, about <laughs> what this might mean in the first verse. Um, I don't know. Thoughts? <laughs> I have lots of thoughts. I, I mean, the the whole poem gives such a different context to the feeling of this opening line. So that poem, I, I would have guessed it much more like to, to influence something on a to B life more than on hmm. catch for us. The foxes, it feels like it's in that world. And of course, you know, all, all the complex feelings of somehow beauty destroying the world feels of a piece with, with the kind of crisis that is at stake in a to B life. Um, and and I think it's one more piece of of uh, evidence to suggest that there's there's more of that story that continues on into Catch for Us the Foxes and maybe is first apparent on listening mm-hmm. to the album. Um, that's been one of the biggest surprises to me so far in the season is how much I keep feeling that album inform what's yeah. happening here. Right. Yeah. But also the um the technique of taking the final line of a poem and using it as the first line of a song is really interesting mm-hmm. i'm sure aaron's probably done this several times but bullet to binary comes to mind mm-hmm. yes that that's mm-hmm. that's the exact yeah. same thing and it creates this this dovetail effect, right? That it's like, you can read the poem and then just start listening to the song and it flows out of it almost like the silent prologue before the song begins. Or that the song is a kind of response yes. to the poem, because yeah. I think we talked about this exactly that exact thing in bullet, uh, bullet binary, right? Mm-hmm. Where it it's, you know, uh, he's uh, where he's saying, let us die, let us die. 
but then he says, don't tell us about yourself, right? He kind of like rejects yeah. the whole idea that Rumi is putting forward in that poem yeah. to begin with, in a sense. And I don't know that that's what's happening here, but yeah. Well, in a way it is, though, because he made the world a grassy road before our bare wandering feet. So our, instead of her, mm-hmm. that's a change. And then we get, then crushed the stones into the softest sand between our toes. Like, it's almost like he's leaning into the over-sentimental sensation that Yeats's Mm -hmm. colleagues were were pointing out. (laughs) So, I I don't know if that was intentional, but it's very interesting. It creates this really gorgeous couplet that's like a meditation on the gift of creation. I mean, that's the feeling of the beginning of this song. Like, what what a, a beautifully made world we have the privilege to live in right exactly and that and that def- that's obviously something that aaron comes back to again and again i mean especially on the next two records right you see a lot of meditation on creation and what that means and yeah and that kind of thing and it's interesting because i think that you know yates's reference to creation is in a way uh, uh, again, it's a kind of sentimentality, right? It's a sort of sentimental move to like appeal to the grandeur. Like this is that's what the Romantics did, right? Yeah. In the generation right. of poets before Yeats, um, the Romantic poets were all about appealing to the wonder of the universe and the majesty of creation. And so, in a sense, this like. You know, putting putting myself like into the modernist period, I can see what Yeats's colleagues were saying. Right, they're sort mm-hmm. of like this is this is romantic, like drivel. We don't do this anymore, <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Um, but then Aaron, yeah, I, I I totally agree, Stephen. Like, yeah, he's taking the creation piece of it, and that's what he's running with. Right, which reminds me of. Remind me the the specific versus general revelation. Is that the phrasing? Um, yes. Uh, special special versus general. Yeah. Special versus general. So like, and in one way that the general revelation comes about is just looking at the world around you. Like God is in everything, every blade of grass, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yes. That that the natural world is uh, full of these signposts that direct you back to God. Yeah. So yeah. I wonder. I maybe completely extrapolating here but and this is not a literary podcast as much as we'd like it to be um (laughs) but now i'm wondering like is that a tendency of a more protestant perspective on how you're using religious imagery in in the modernist era yeah i mean (laughs) there's a i think there's a lot to there's so much to dig into i think with Mm -hmm. um a certain kind of i think Protestant slash evangelical. Uh, I mean, it's uh, the thing is, it's not even really limited to evangelicals. I don't think, but there is a kind of uh, poetic or aesthetic uh, palette, if you will, that I think a lot of younger religious, like sort of Gen X, older millennials, um, were really drawn to at during this time, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I knew tons of people who in seminary, uh, who, you know, were really into reading, um, 
figures that I think you could call sentimental. I, you know, they're not technically labeled that way, but someone like Thomas Merton, right, mm. who was a Catholic monk priest in the you know middle of the 20th century, who also had a lot of proclivities and interest, uh, proclivities toward an interest in Buddhism, right? So, mm. um, you know, he his famous book memoir really is called Seven Story Mountain. Um, and uh, yeah, I just knew tons of people who were into that tons of people who read Augustine for the poetics of Augustine, not necessarily the theology of Augustine. Um, <laughs> uh, Fascinating. yeah, I mean, there, there is a kind of, there is a whole sort of theo, what, what's called theo poetics that goes far beyond the tooth and nail, uh, scene. Um, but, but for sure encompasses like there's, you could draw like some Venn diagrams, right? Yeah, that absolutely. Like a lot of crossover. <laughs> and me without you falls in like the center of several of those intersections. <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I would, yeah. I would again, just, just bring um, St. Francis into the conversation here yes. with no comment, but just he's, he's definitely he's here. He's watching over our there. shoulders yeah. right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I I would I would be hesitant to to pin the first two lines too closely into any into any one tradition. One is because they're so sure. beautiful and broadly absolutely yeah. applicable, yeah. but also because this song begins to lean into I think some 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 of Aaron's uh, Muslim imagination for the first time mm. that we've not seen yet. Yes, in mm-hmm. really any of their songs up to this point, and so. Uh, so just even placing his response to the grassy road um, to stones being crushed into sand, like you start, you start to move from like a verdant area into the desert and, and your mind, at least my mind goes into somewhere in the middle East, like a sudden we're in like Bible times and we're yeah. maybe in the world of Muhammad or whatever, but you know, we're entering a different landscape and he does it so deftly and so seamlessly yeah, that that he puts us in that space. Um, I also just want to point out the parallel is not just between grass and sand as these two gifts, mm-hmm. but they're gifts given for the purpose of of movement and repose. That we have walking uh, on the one hand and resting on the other, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then followed up. That well, that's put quite plainly by the line. But we're wondering where to sleep. Yeah, which takes me to many a parable in the Bible, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. namely the birth of our Lord and Savior. Um, <laughs> where where sure, are sure. they going to go? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or Jacob, you know, laying his head down on a rock and seeing mm-hmm. the heavens open up with people ascending and descending. We'll get there on ten stories, <laughs> um, or yes. nine stories rather. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> right. So then, so what do we do then? I mean, obviously, this next set of lines that concludes the verse is well known. I think you know, especially to people who have who have the book or know about the book. All the clever words on pages. Mm-hmm. Um, what is he talking about here? Like, but the clever <laughs> the clever words on pages turn to fragments, circles, points, and lines, and they cover them like carpets with graceful, meaningless, ornamental designs. So I, I was really pondering that last line because 
as it's been described to me, in much of Islamic tradition, they're not supposed to make representative art. Correct. So when you look at a area rug that a Persian rug or an Oriental rug, as some may call them, there's a lot of really beautiful fragments, circles, points, and lines, but they don't mean anything. Or they don't well, no. mean... It's not that they don't mean anything. It's that they don't <laughs> represent a particular object in the real world. Right. So, yeah, the so the term is arabesque. That is mm-hmm. the um, typically the kind of geometric Stephen, pattern. insert uh, clip of the song arabesque. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that, that is typically what the pattern, that sorts of patterns are called. Um, you find in mosques... Uh, some very intricate, detailed arabesque patterns. There's mm-hmm. also uh, a use of um, of writing a lot mm-hmm. of times um, in in the mosques in in these designs. And the yeah, I mean, I I also thought uh, you know I mean it's obvious that he's referring to a so-called Persian rug, right? They cover them like carpets with mm-hmm. graceful, meaningless ornamental designs. But the thing is, is that um, I mean, maybe on the rugs, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know about the rugs. In mosques, though, the geometric patterns, like what you were describing, Nick, like this um, sort of general prohibition against representation mm-hmm. uh, in Muslim art, which, which by the way, is not absolute. Uh, there are Definitely branches not. of Islam that that do have represent, you know, representation in in art. It's not a definitely. Uh, you know, blanket prohibition, but uh, you you know many of the most famous, like the Blue Mosque and and a lot of these like very famous mosques in the Middle East, they they don't they they mm-hmm. only have these geometric patterns. And so to get to the point, the the patterns are supposed to rep- represent in many cases uh, the complexity of creation, right? That you're noticing patterns, but they are so intricate, so complicated that it's really impossible for you to take in the whole of what you are looking at. Your eye keeps jumping to one point and then another point and then one pattern, another repeated thing. And, you know, um, and it's, you really can't take it all in. Um, and so, yeah, in many cases that is representative of the beauty, the complexity, uh, the sort of, um, ineffable nature, if yes. you will, of, uh, of creation, which yes. then, which fits then in a sense with the, the rest of the verse, the earlier part of the verse where we're talking about creation, mm-hmm. right? But it's yeah. interesting that he says, you know, it, it's a turn, right? Oh, but clever words on pages. And I take that to be a reference to the poetic language yes. that he's just been using, yes. right? That those turn to fragments, circles, points, lines. Now, when you take those pieces, right, apart from like before he gets into the metaphor of the carpet and and the and an arabesque pattern. Mm-hmm. When you think about fragments, circles, points, lines in terms of a metaphor for writing. Yeah. Right, you ha- that you very clearly have uh like babble in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, fragments that don't make sense, circular thinking, 
right? Circular thinking where um, you're not really making an argument, you're assuming the conclusion uh, of your argument in the premise, right? That's what <laughs> circular thinking sure. is. Um, uh, you have you have points with no reference to anything else, right? Lines of thought that go nowhere. Like that's what I get from from that. That's interesting because I focus more on the literal shape, i.e., those are the shapes making up the meaningless ornamental designs. Right. Later. Well, you so, see, so you, you get to that. Yes, they're you do pouring get to into that each later. other. Yeah. Right. So I think it's both. I think it could be both. Definitely. Right? Be- Definitely. Because right. because you have this turn after the po- poetic language. Oh, but clever words on pages mm-hmm. do this. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems to me to be speaking to the uh, the futility, in a sense of cleverness of clever words sure to use our uh, collective i won't say favorite song but the song our, our clarion call song of this band to help explain this we didn't ask what it seemed like we asked what it is and this is hmm. hinting at the the ineffability of creation itself like there yeah. is at some level no yeah. point in trying to grasp it the way that you do with poetic verse or the way that you do with I'm not begrudging scientific analysis, but for the sake of this argument, like trying to know what it is you're looking at instead of just accepting it as it is. Right. Is is an interesting point. Yeah. Well, and so to me, the, the word that stands out in this statement that I've never really known what to do with and never thought of till now is them. So and cover them like carpets. I, I've never really thought about what the them is referring to, but now I'm, I'm looking at it and it seems like it's the grass and the sand. It's like we've been given these gifts and then we either try to cover them up with just saying clever things about them by writing poems or by talking too much or yes, whatever. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah. And so we we've ceased to appreciate the the gift that is nature itself. And, and then he pulls the metaphor into these carpets, which is doing a lot of work by inciting a whole cultural universe that has now appeared for the first time that has not really been a part of their catalog yet. But also literally a carpet is something you lay on the ground. And so now, now you can picture Mm -hmm. these carpets covering the grass and covering the sand. And it's like, we need to do something to cover up what was already good enough on its own. And oh my gosh, this metaphor is just getting better and better the more we're digging in because in nomadic cultures, what they would do when they would set up a tent is lay rugs down to create a sense of, a, you know, a, a living space, right? A place yeah. for you to sleep <laughs> yeah. in a sense. And that's, <laughs> wow, mm, fascinating. Should we go to the chorus? Yeah. Sure. If if chorus we can call it. <laughs> um, <laughs> as is usual with this band. Um, Steven, take it away. Come quick, you light that knows no evening. Come alone to the alone. I have a thousand half-loves well worth leaving for to take your madness home. And you dance inside my chest where no one sees you but sometimes I see you. 
So a quick word about the music of this chorus before we get into what all the words are doing. Um, it is a rare instance on this album of a major chord, which comes as a surprising shift. So if you remember at the very opening of the song, we came out of disaster tourism on this A minor. And then moved onto this B natural drone that introduces the song. What we get at the start of this chorus is that move back up from B to C, but now we get actually a wholesale C major chord, which I think in the guitars is colored with that B still on top, making it a C major seven. And then it slides back down a half step to a B minor, and that, that B stays on top. Where the chorus goes is into a D major and then an F sharp minor. And then hearing that played on the piano is conjuring up some interesting musical memories, but I can't recall <laughs> other than this song. It's that's fascinating. What a fascinating yeah. chord progression. Yeah, wow. it is. Um, it all those chords when you play them on the keyboard are, are share a bunch of common tones. So even though a C C major seven and a B minor are a half step away from each other and ideally all the notes would change because there's, there's nothing shared that that softening B natural on the top of the C chord creates a common tone there. And wow. moving from the, the B minor to the D we have B D F sharp. You just move one note down to A D F sharp. sharp f sharp so it's just one note at a time moving in those those later movements so that it creates this sense of like really smooth kind of just hazy blending into one another rather than having like a hard shift but at the same time that uplift at the beginning of the chorus as you hit that c major seven chord feels like it's calling you to attention like something has happened here yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, something has happened, right? I mean, so he's he's offered this meditation on nature and and what our human proclivities are to feel like we need to add something to that, and then all of a sudden we're we're dropped right into the middle of a prayer, like the I think, right? Does it seem like this is now suddenly praying it, as the form of address is to God now? It's almost definitively a prayer. In fact, it is a like it's hard to know which direct reference it is because there's two excerpts from a hymn and an ode by an abbess and who is the other and a theologian uh, a monk and theologian okay um so the first is from cassia's fifth ode of her tetradon for holy saturday from oh. the triodion mm -hmm. Isaiah, as he watched by night, beheld the light that knows no evening. You divine manifestation, O Christ, that came to pass because of your compassion for us, cried out, the dead shall arise, and they that are in the tomb shall be raised. All those on the earth shall rejoice exceedingly. 
And then from St. Uh, Simone, the New Theologian's Hymns of Divine Love, and that one's a little longer, so I'm just going to skip ahead to Come, light that knows no evening, come, unfailing expectation of the saved, come, raising of the fallen, come, resurrection of the dead, etc. It's, you know, you know similar Goodness. metaphors oh, and things. Yeah. That's so chilling. Both both of them with the exact phrase, you light that knows no evening, yeah. the, the never-ending light. Which, right back to Torches Together. Yes. It's a, it's a nice little callback to, yes, of course, that's God. Of course, that's, you know, yeah. the light of, of God. But the light of God is within all of us. Right. But it's also the light of God that raises the dead. The yes. fact that we're invoking mm-hmm. a God who is capable of resurrection, I think, is really meaningful. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely agree. And it's so desperate and so sincere sounding the first time he says it (laughs) oh my gosh his delivery of alone to the alone is just oh man it's heartbreaking it's heartrending and then we get another reference i have a thousand half loves well worth leaving for to take your madness home is a near direct reference to rumi which Mm. is it's more of a a half reference. The line is a thousand half loves must be forsaken to take one whole heart home. Mm. Which Mm. I love reading that line in the context of all the learning and all the things we've been doing this season thus far, but also last season. Yeah. All of these distractions that you have in your life, including the church, as we're seeming to see in, in Aaron's perception of things, are getting in the way of taking the one whole heart home. Now, purity of heart is to will one thing. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And to take your madness mm. home. Yes. Like the uh, again back to ineffable. Like the, the yeah. ineffability of the Lord is is paramount here and and that's yeah. very apparent and uh yeah. You made a holy fool of me and I've thanked you ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right? You. Like like we're building uh-huh. this this collage of imagery that is going to continue to unfold. And then the references continue by the way. Um, <laughs> another roomy poem. <laughs> this is from Art as Flirtation and Surrender. In your light, I learn how to love. In your beauty, how to make poems. You dance inside my chest where no one sees you. But sometimes I do, and that sight becomes this art. Mm. Mm. Which again, right back to the meaningless <laughs> rugs, the meaningless Goodness. carpets. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and for, for Rumi to be associated with this, you know, this tradition of worship through spinning dance mm-hmm. uh, yep. seems significant here again yep that the way that that rumi is is picturing god as is as one dancing inside his chest mm-hmm. exactly mm. yeah is it this is it this chorus where he repeats the stanza and then says etc 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 that's the that's the next one yeah, yes. is it after verse two? It's after an it's, interlude. Yeah, it's after the very funky dance break. Yes. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, yes. okay. So yeah. should yeah. we talk about the dance break and then 
Well, is there any more? Or did is there any more that either of you had to say on the chorus? Because the one thing I wanted to parse, and this comes directly from Rumi, so it's yeah. interesting. You dance inside my chest where no one sees you. No one sees you, but sometimes I do. Now, the way Aaron delivers that line, it feels a little more self-centered than uh, maybe I'm being too harsh on on Aaron, the narrator there, but a little too. I'm the only one who's seeing this. I'm the only one who's getting the revelation instead of it being I'm the only one who can see it because it's within me. Yeah, I, that's fair. Um, I I've never heard it as being selfish, but but to me, the thing that really stands out about this moment that that speaks to that is the way he uses the word alone. It it comes back to back, um, and and just to to make sure that "Come Alone to the Alone" is that Aaron's original, as far as we can tell, as that ties I have together. Not found a reference, yeah. So that's that's his assertion insertion. Yeah. So we have this this invocation. Come quick, you light that knows no evening, in reference to oh. God as he raises the dead. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you better be alone. Yeah. So so that's <laughs> the most standout use of the word alone up until now. But I, mm-hmm. I think both of these uses is is almost like you can't have two opposites of the same meeting, but these are both so far removed from and you'd better be alone. Yes. Um because the come alone, I mean, maybe you could say that that has some some overlapping meaning with you better be alone. But I mean, w- when you're addressing God that way, now now all of a sudden it's like it's like you're asking for someone who who is like a trusted friend, almost like I just I need to talk to you one on one. Like yes. this, this being this noisy crowd is not is not going to work. Like that's the way the first alone in this chorus reads, and then to the alone has a totally different shade of meaning. Now it's like, it's someone sure who's lonely, who, who has no place, who doesn't fit in with the people around them. So as someone who's lonely, I need to talk to you, God, one-on-one. And mm-hmm. so then to me, that creates the, where no one sees you, but sometimes I see you. Um, it, it's a sadder space than it is a boastful one. Yes. Sad. Mm-hmm. Well, the selfishness of, I'll, bring in Tolkien because why not? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The Gandalf talks about this concept of despair is only for those who know the end beyond all doubt. And as we all know, like you can't know that as a mortal right. or a near immortal, but like right. o- only the creator can know that Yeah. in, mm-hmm. in the Christian and Islamic tradition sure. that we're seeing sure. yeah. melded, welded together so well here. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a selfishness in the despair that I'm feel I'm feeling mm. from this. I think I would say it's yeah. and I hate to call it selfish because it's you want to lift this person up, but it's not selfish in a disparaging way, just selfish in that like you're only able to see the perspective your perspective at the moment. And yeah. I think that's the real friction here is is Aaron the narrator and Aaron the person in some ways being drawn towards this other oriented mm-hmm. version of faith but not getting the feeling, not getting the sensation of connection to the divine that he was expecting. Yeah. 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 I also think it's worth setting this line um, side by side with however much I strut around, however loud I sing, the shining one inside me won't say anything. 
Yes. Because in that line, the, God is silent. And and there's something about Aaron's own performance, uh, probably of words, right? I mean, he's up on stage strutting mm-hmm. around singing these words, it, back to reference to all the clever words on pages. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that case, God is silent. Now, here we have something slightly more hopeful, which is, sometimes I see you. There is no confidence yes. that this is a guaranteed mm-hmm. formula, but like when he looks yes. inside, sometimes. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Which is interesting when you go back to the bells on the camel, um, right? Like it should, he he has the sensation that I should be feeling you and seeing you at yeah. all times. Yeah. Which is so heartbreaking. Yeah. And the other thing this conjures up in my mind, and then I promise we can move on to the dance break, um, <laughs> is what we get in, I believe it's in Forward Letter Part 2. The basic, like, I don't care about your dogmas. I want you. God yeah. I, and that yeah. that coming alone mm-hmm. is come without the scripture and the church and all of the culture around you like I want you yeah yeah what yeah. a fascinating and heartbreaking admission right mm-hmm. yeah because those are the things that bring you to God right right and and what an opposite to torches together mm-hmm. here. At, at the end of the first half of the album, right? In some sense, this creates like a, a midpoint pivot, whereas that song opened everything up. And that song is all about people being together in the presence of God. It uses exactly. this light imagery, but now he wants God to come alone without all the rest to himself, who is also mm-hmm. alone without all these other people around him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that's basically what the bass is doing. The guitar's cut out completely, just bass and drums for a little while. Um, Mm -hmm. And those, so those two pairs of notes is A, B, A, B, not to make more of that than I need to right now. Wow. But then up top, you have So basically the whole song, other than that sort of chromatic slide into the chorus, is just an alternation between E minor chords and B minor chords. And as I've said on this album, one of the most important things the bass is doing all the time is playing a, a whole step below the tonic of either the chord or the key of the whole song. And so this whole middle funky section does that in a way that that creates this open-ended free movement that's not bound to. Right. It's just softer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's more fun, I guess. Now, why we have a fun dance break at this moment, given the words we've just heard, is the question, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Now, in the, in the pattern that's been established in this album so far, at the ends of songs, we get these sort of extended instrumental breaks where it gives you a chance to reflect on what you've just heard. That seems to be what, what they're working with here. 
It's interesting yeah. this comes right in the middle of the song. Um, and then it's followed by a repetition of the chorus with, with very significant changes. But yes. to me, it creates almost a mirror image in the song itself, where you have this opening idea, you have this mm-hmm. chorus, you get this funky dance break, then back into the chorus, then back into some other idea, and then it's out. So it creates this very symmetrical pattern to the song. And it's it's a surprise that we get right back to the chorus afterwards. I don't think there's another song in this album that does it quite like that. I, I can't think of one. But they're full of surprises in terms of creating these instrumental sections that set up an expectation, and then the next lyrical thing that happens upsets that expectation. Again, in any normal song, at this point, there's going to be another verse that comes in after this dance break, mm-hmm. and there isn't. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guitars also in this instrumental section in the middle, um, there is this one, there's several layers of kind of high screechy stuff happening kind of yep. off the distance. It's pretty atmospheric. There's yes. one moment where there's this half step kind of wobbling back and forth softly in one of the guitars, which is between a B and a C, which again, as I said from the very beginning of the song, is this kind of dichotomy that's set up. And, and yeah. if if anything anticipates them going back into the chorus at the end of this dance break, it's that guitar line. Because mm, then the next okay. chords you get are... Right, that C and that B again. Right. Wow. Hmm. So it gives you a chance to reflect. I mean, it does its job. It does. Like other moments like this in their catalog do, where you get to think about what you just heard. Um, now, now that's where I want to go with like one of the first changes yeah. between chorus one and chorus two, which in terms of lyrical organization don't feel like choruses because you're hearing one and then the other immediately. <laughs> right. But that's that's why it's so fascinating yeah. is back to the use of the distorted, you know, yeah. second mic. Yep. Which. Mm-hmm. I posited a couple episodes ago is him speaking either that's an internal monologue or speaking to the divine. Mm -hmm. But we know from reading the lyrics that he was already speaking to the divine. So that kind of throws a a wrench in that. Sure. But as he shifts into et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's like he's going from one mic to the other. Like it's becoming a cleaner, louder. Yeah. Yeah lyrical perspective so in a sense it's almost like i'm just playing a recording of myself saying that (laughs) and now i'm like i'm bored i've been saying this stuff to you over and over again it's not working like yeah come on come on let's go and then joel i'm sure you have some things to say about the word etc um (laughs) yeah before we get to etc can can we just live with the delivery of the second chorus because Mm -hmm. it's been like it's it's almost the defining feature of this song for me is like uh, because we have such sincerity the first time around and then something else happens here <laughs> yeah How do you all read just the, the I, shape of his phrasing? Yeah. Joel, you go ahead first. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, I mean, so what are you what are you thinking, Stephen? Like, how uh, so, is it striking you? 
To me, the, this whole section feels like a shrug and an eye roll kind of all exact- put together. Sure. Okay. It, okay. It just, it feels perfunctory and ironic. Mm-hmm. And it, it, so, in, in, and it feels like something that he said over and over again. And, and so it, it does all sorts of things retroactively right. to the chorus you just heard, because the chorus right. you just heard feels like this desperate spontaneous cry out to God. And now all of a sudden that you get a word for word repetition of it, but it sounds like something he has to say. Right. Now Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, this is just punctuated by the, et cetera. Yes. Yes. He screams at the end. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, That's almost exactly the, the phrasing you used. And the only thing I would add is I, it also has the sensation of like running, like I, like, I just, I have to do this. I'm, I'm, or I'm getting back to the microphone. Like I ran away from the microphone on stage and I have to get back to it because the song must go on in a a sense. And I I think Ricky's drum work has a lot to do with that. He's got more of these little quick clicks on the snare drum that are in this that don't happen in the first chorus. And it creates this momentum. that's like, okay, get on with it. Get on with it. Let's move on Mm -hmm. and just finish the song. We don't need to repeat this part again or something. Um, yeah. I also think it's worth noting that this, at a at a slightly more um, expanded pace, echoes the way the song opens, because the mm-hmm. opening of the song, um, even as you read it, Joel, has a line, and then it has the distorted vocal echo that line. And you have the same, you know, the second line, the distorted vocal echoes this, the second line. And, and I've always heard that at least a little bit, like it creates a sense of outdoor space because we're talking about grass and sand and mm-hmm, all right. this. That it's almost like you, you call something out and you hear that mountains echo it back. But you could also think of it as, as being um, sort of liturgical almost. Like, okay, you say this and then like, okay, and then everyone repeats this thing after you. And it's almost like he's, he's playing with himself that way. Yeah. Say your Hail Marys and it'll all be... Yeah. And, and and because he's already invoked clever words, like what does it mean to say to say a line and then to repeat it? Does that take away from the value of the words that they're now repeated? Never minding that obviously he's been performing this song for the last <laughs> however many years too. I was going to say, right. in a sense, it sounds like a tired band at the end of a tour <laughs> saying the line, like, I hate this line, but I have to say it because everyone yeah. knows it. And yeah. I know that's not true yeah. of this band, but that's the image it's evoking for me, which is so fascinating because that's well, kind of the picture we're being painted or yeah. having painted for us throughout this album. And he may be increasingly uncomfortable with the, the seeming sentimentality of the way the opening is, too. And he just admits it out of the gate, but really subtly. Right. Yeah. So, so what does the word et cetera mean, Joel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that you could read it as a reference to Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. Um, he i'm trying to find this place so there's in in the novel breakfast of champions which we talked about last season a bit apparently um, spoiler alert for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you have not read this novel that was published in 1973 uh <laughs> 
Is there a statute um, of limitations on spoiler yeah, alerts? Uh, yes, <laughs> that's what I thought. But exactly. Um, but no, I mean, look, if I get it, if you're a big uh, a big Vonnegut fan, then uh, you know you you want to be able to experience his work, mm-hmm. you know, yourself for the first time without any any spoilers. I understand. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's a there's a part toward the end um, where. Uh, kind of in the last chapter and into the what is called the epilogue, uh, which you know uh, he Vonnegut is repeating the phrase and so on over and over yep. again. So like something happens and then he'll have like a full paragraph break and he'll just write and so on. So um, the thing, the thing is that like all of these like super mundane. Uh, uh, like boring, like sort of seemingly meaningless things are happening to Dwayne Hoover. He's having these weird conversations that like are pointless and boring and like not like the thing is, is that they're not literary at all. Like that's one of the things that I think really confounded critics about Vonnegut's writing is that he's so uh, like so banal so mm. mundane, like intentionally so in his, in some of his dialogue and some of the things he's describing, it's like, you know, but when you put it all together and see the bigger picture, it, you know, that's when it makes sense. Um, but so he's saying he's, he's following up each of these like little mini episodes towards this nervous breakdown with, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then at the very end, when the, the book essentially ends right before the epilogue. Vonnegut has drawn in Sharpie in big block letters, the abbreviation, et cetera. And the whole, the, the whole point of this, I mean, it, it, you know, really didn't need this long drawn, <laughs> drawn out thing, I guess, because we've already sort of talked about it in previous episodes, right? It's this idea that um, it, it's a, it's a kind of uh, existential absurdism. Um, this idea that, uh, the absurdity of life is just, uh, it's endemic. It's abundantly common, right? So common that you just, you're just going through the motions of absurdity, right? And that you can just, you don't need to even finish, right? The, the description of the absurd thing, you just say, and so on, or mm-hmm. et cetera. And, you know, uh, right. and that's supposed to be this like stand in for, the repetition of the absurdity of living essentially. And so I think that that is relevant here. Certainly. I mean, you know, Stephen, your, your read on the lyrics or the delivery being sort of like, um, eye roll. you know, yeah, a big eye roll. I mean that, I think that fits very well with the screaming of et cetera at the, <laughs> at the end, if, especially if it is actually a Vonnegut reference, um, which I think it very well could be. Yeah. Well, and, and how much more profound because of how deeply meaningful this chorus is taken on its own, the first pass without this mm-hmm. in here, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's calling upon God as the resurrector, Really, in in the the couple of references to the light that knows no evening, um, and it, and then it becomes very personal. Come alone to the alone, dancing inside my chest, where sometimes I see you. Like so, it takes like God and His awesome power to raise the dead, which also has a very sort of haunting 
cast over where the song is going to end. And then he makes it very personal. And all that is so loaded with desperation that then to turn that into something that is just absurd repetition is grotesque. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it may uh. also be the fact that this entire chorus is, is a patchwork of quotes that may be part of what he's critiquing. Right. But then it's also where the song goes with, with the self harm and, and suicide yeah. concepts, right? Like, the absurdity of the the beautiful absurdity that we were seeing talked about uh, of like why are we even trying to put words to this? It's it just is what it is. Yeah. And then this horrible, you know, knife in the gut twisted moment of like actually the whole thing is absurd. Why am I here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nick, could you just read the words to this next section? Uh, verse two. Uh, everything after that second chorus. Yeah, I guess we yeah. can call that verse two. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. Maybe up until every word I say. Oh, rejoice the cleansing of my lips. Rejoice salvation of my soul. I still have a thousand half loves. Oh my God, I want to shoot myself just thinking about it. And you think I don't mean what I say? Well, I mean every word I say. Just just to set it side by side, I want to read a quote in response to that. This is from Leo Tolstoy's A Confession. <laughs> as Good. I mentioned before, I, which I, mm-hmm. I feel like many moments in this album are meditating on Tolstoy's thoughts in that book. Yeah. This is a theme that runs throughout Tolstoy's Confession, but this is, to me, the most sort of crystallized expression. So here we go. He exists, I said to myself, and I had only for an instant to admit that at once life rose within me and I felt the possibility of joy and being. But again, from the admission of the existence of a God, I went on to seek my relation with him. And again, I imagined that God, our creator, and three persons who sent his son, the savior, and again, that God detached from the world and from me melted like a block of ice melted before my eyes and again nothing remained and again the spring of life dried up within me and I despaired and felt that I had nothing to do but to kill myself and the worst of all was that I felt I could not do it not twice or three times but tens and hundreds of times I reached these conditions first of joy and animation then of despair and consciousness of the impossibility of living Wow. Specifically coming after Leaf and Disaster Tourism, Mm -hmm. which is where we see the pretty much definitive reference to a confession. Mm -hmm. That's really fitting here. (laughs) So the themes are hard to ignore. Yeah. It's, It's so surprising to hear this in the context of the other kinds of music that was coming out in like the Christian music scene in the aughts, right? To have in the same breath, a statement like rejoice the salvation of my soul 
followed by, oh my God, I want to shoot myself just thinking about it. Yes. Mm. In Within the world of like ly- lyrics that Me Without You is entering into, there is no precedent that I know of for that kind of a statement that close yeah. back to back. Yeah. Right. But, but then you see this, this excerpt from Tolstoy and it, and there is a precedent for it. It's just not in the sort of place you would expect. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So someone on, uh, on genius.com calls the first line of this verse, um, a reference to something from Isaiah. Mm. where Isaiah is talking about unclean lips and, and living among people with unclean lips. And then an angel mm-hmm. takes a coal from the altar in front of God's throne and touches right. Isaiah's lips and states, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Right. Yeah. Which, oh man, I hate to always have the gun analogy so quick at the draw, but, uh, when you fire a gun, it's quite hot for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. So, mm, yeah, oh, that might wow. be drawing too far a comparison, but the I don't think so. The coal I don't think so. or the or the oh, what's the old English? Uh, the gleed, as it's called, like the the hot amber is called a gleed, mm-hmm. and that's uh, mm-hmm. fascinating. It's so mm. heartbreaking. <laughs> I hate this song. Can we move to the next one? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just, just end. Uh, yeah. Uh. I mean, it's it's really the kind of double edge of what's happening there, right? Because on the one hand, you know, he's talking about the cleansing of his lips, rejoice the salvation of my soul. Um, there's, in some ways, right, you could read that as a bunch of, Christian platitudes. Correct. Right. Yeah. That there's that this is something that is repeated Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Right. Um, but then it, the thing that is cleansing his lips, right, if it is the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just interesting that like he's talking about cleansing lips, but then he wants to shoot himself thinking about this, the like the just the sheer banality right of all of it but the thing that he's using then to shoot himself is the thing that's cleansing is you see what i'm saying there's like this weird like circularity there if you read it that way yeah um yeah well and also just the the purpose the context of of the angel cleansing the lips of isaiah is so that he can proclaim the message of god to the people yes that that if Aaron is questioning his own role as a mouthpiece of something true that he has to say from the stage here in this song by questioning the value of the words that he's using, I mean here, I don't know. Like it's, I think it's I think it matters what cleansing of the lips means yes. in its biblical context. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Just for uh, a moment, a, a brief respite from analyzing lyrics, I thought it would be interesting to compare how frequently they played this song in the Farewell Tour versus the following song, The Soviet, because I do see them as so similar and tied. They played this song 16 times and the Soviet 11. Hmm. I, I know. Oh, interesting. I, I would have thought the Soviet would have been like, yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. top yeah. three or four, along with like Paper Hanger in the first two tracks. Uh, but yeah. no, Paper Hanger was 18. Wow. Um, which that's low too. I mean, they played 44 shows this tour, apparently. And uh, hmm. yeah, wow, fascinating. But there's I, there's something the, to the the finality of this track lyrically versus the Soviet. The Soviet's a little more ambiguous, um, and I think they did that sometimes. If it's not heavy handed in my opinion, but like the first song they played was "My Exit Unfair," that that was the mm-hmm. opener to the opening night of the of the farewell tour, and yeah, that's pretty on the nose. Like goodbye. Uh, <laughs> oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way that this moment mm-hmm. reads in light of the other tendencies of like repeated words and and how he's sort of fed up with repeating these prayers over and over or whatever. Also, the fact that he uses the word rejoice structurally at the beginning of each statement makes it feel like a call and response in in a liturgical setting. Right to me, anyway. Does that make sense? Rejoice, the mm-hmm. cleansing of my lips. It's mm-hmm. almost like everyone yes. sings the word rejoice together. Right. Rejoice, the salvation like, of my soul. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It does It does read like that kind of like call and response liturgical sort of thing. Yes. So yeah. we, there's so there's several angles you can take it from. But if, if you want to picture that now from this lonely space he's been in, we've dropped back into church. And now he's like saying these sorts of things that he's supposed to say. And mm-hmm. then the dark turn is him just like, he can't handle that. And he's like shaking himself out of that. Like of all these people, like praying these things together. Right. That doesn't take away from the individual reading that you're talking about on what, what the cleansing of his lips might consist of, but. Right. It just over, it overlaps that and elides the two reads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- there's also an interesting um, sort of internal contradiction, mm-hmm. which is fine with, well, I mean every word I say, right? And you think I don't mean what I say? Well, I mean every word I say. I mean, it's a weird thing to say in the lyrics of any song. It does some work similar to what we've heard like in the first couple of tracks in this album, where all of a sudden it feels like we drop out of anything poetic and it's just a very direct aside to the audience. Yeah, there's a breaking of the fourth wall for sure there. Yeah, maybe not that different from what Vonnegut was doing with these sort of banal moments of life that don't mm-hmm. feel literary. It's like, this doesn't feel like a poetic line. Yeah. It's just, a, just an honest comment. It, it is. Right. And, and in the, in the context of, of suicide, self-harm or just depression in general, it's like, no, I really mean this. At least I did when I wrote the song, I, I, I yeah. really mean that whole statement that I just made that, that take this seriously. Yes. Yes, I I absolutely think that's what it's doing there is just imploring the audience. Do not think this is just me being overly dramatic or emo or whatever. Like, no, I am serious about what I'm saying now. But if if we want to give it any poetic weight in the context of the song, paired with a line like all the clever words on pages Mm -hmm. where he's denigrating the value of words. As, as they respond to nature, now he's like, no, say, pay attention. Like, you need to hear these words that I am saying yes. right now. And but they're not clever. Maybe that's the difference. They're direct. They're, they're, yeah. they're not flowery. They're not, they're not intending to 
belie any understand. Like, I need you to understand. Like, the phrase, oh my God, I want to shoot myself just thinking about it. Like, doesn't get more direct than that in terms of Aaron yeah. Weiss's lyrics. Like, yeah. There's mm-hmm. no, we're not, there's no other reading of that. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. But then we get some incredible metaphysical conceit right after that. Yeah. So. Hmm. Let me read the ending here. Yeah, go ahead. I threw a small stone down at the reflection of my image in the water. Echoes. I threw a small stone down at the reflection of my image in the water. And it all together disappeared. I burst as it shattered through me like a bullet through a bottle. And I'm expected to believe that any of this is real? Again, with the symmetry of the song, yes. we have this line with its distorted echo right afterwards, now here in the ending of the lyrics, the same way we did at the very beginning of the lyrics, which is an interesting structural choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's parse what's actually happening. Like, this is a lot easier to figure out what's actually happening compared to throwing you into a cupboard with all the chipped and dirty plates. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still worth figuring out what is being depicted so we can parse what the metaphor is. But I threw a small stone down at the reflection of my image in the water and it altogether disappeared. Uh, So that could be the stone, but I really think it's like, I, you can't see yourself in the reflection anymore Mm -hmm. as the ripples are going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I burst as it shattered through me again, that's the stone through you, the reflection of you, like a mm-hmm. bullet through a bottle. And we should sit on that for a moment, especially with what just happened in the previous stanza. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shoot myself just thinking about it. Now, the bullet's going through a bottle. It's like a bullet going through a bottle. Yes. The stone mm-hmm. is going through his own face. Yes. Well, and I just, I, I want to, you know, a, a kind of tie, uh, we, some of this water imagery together because we've please we talked about in tie me up on tie me there's the verse that begins i was swimming through the waves for what must have been days but could find no relief when i started sinking down i thought for certain i would drown and and uh you know when we talked about that um particular verse i brought up uh elliot and and love song of J. J. alfred prufrock in the end of that uh that poem, right, which ends with him uh, looking at these mermaids, um, uh, you know, calling, he thinks that they're, well, they're calling to each other. He doesn't think that they're calling to him and they're like riding these waves. And all of a sudden he, you know, the, he says human voices, uh, you know, wake us and we drown, right? Being, he's called back to reality and realizes that like he mm-hmm. can't swim essentially, yeah. right? In the, um, uh, uh, that, that his, that his life, I mean, as we talked about in that episode, that his life is essentially, uh, meaningless. Um, but there's this, this imagery of sinking, I guess, is, is maybe what I want to kind of, uh, like home in on a little bit because we have it, in Time Me Up and Time Me, we have it now here where it's a stone sinking. Um, yeah. We have the exact same uh, language sort of brought together in uh, Julia also. Mm, yeah. Right? Yep. Um, 
safely on the shore, we sank like stones to the bottom of a made-up ocean. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the chorus yeah. of of Julia. Right, the second half of the chorus. Um, and there, you know, ah, oh, man, it's so interesting to think about the fact that, and, and you know, and maybe for Aaron, there there was no connection consciously between what he's saying here about the unreality of what it is he's seeing and you know what he's saying in in the course of Julia right this made up ocean right um but there's yeah i don't know there's this interest you you don't see the same kind of paradox here where you know uh you're not safe on the shore sinking yeah. like a stone you know it's just straightforwardly throwing the stone in shattering the image but there's something here about stones and sinking, and I think that's a direct reference of, to this of water. Like, I, I like, I, I really think that I had never thought of that till just now. But I think that's a direct reference to this image. Okay, because the you is put. He's he's putting himself out there into the reflection. Yeah. yeah. So when you so you can both simultaneously be on the shore and in the water using this image. Right. Well, and there's also so as yeah, we I sink, burst. Yeah. yeah. I burst as it shattered through me. Yes. Not my image. Like he's, he's identifying. Yes. Yeah. So I am seeing myself out there and that self out there is the one sinking to the bottom of the made up ocean. Yeah. I, I think, I think that across catch for us, the foxes, there's too many references to himself underwater mm-hmm. to let it slip as just an yeah, accident. Yeah. So we have, we have that, um, you know, I thought for certain I would drown, but there's also rescued by a sinking mm-hmm. ship. Mm-hmm. And I think, yep. I think we're not done with those images no. yet. I think it's significant that this is the last line we get at the midpoint of the album. Mm-hmm. We're, we're at the end of side A now. We're about to make a flip into side B. And right here at the center point of the album, we get him looking at his own face in, in a mirror image back to back. Yeah. And as he's just been thinking about shooting himself, mm-hmm. the next image we get almost like a cinematic cut is him throwing a rock into his own face in the right. water. And it's himself against himself. And it softens the blow of how horrifying that moment is right before this, but it doesn't leave it. It makes you sit there with it in a palatable image. Yes. Yeah. And there's another thing that I, I would like to point out that kind of brings a nice symmetry, I think, to the lyrics, right? And that is... Um, so in, uh, in Plato's philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, Plato thinks that, uh, that certain artistic forms, especially poetry are deceptive. They are false. Um, mm. they are false because they are reflections of reflections. Okay. That's the, that is the language he uses. Our our straightforward language, uh, just you know, normal descriptive language, is itself a reflection, right? It's it's of a shadow thought. in a yeah. sense of the of the forms, right? Of the 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 of what ultimate reality actually is. And poetry yeah. is, in Plato's view, um, negative. I mean, it's ironic because Plato only wrote in dialogues. Right with Socrates, right. right? There's like a weird sort of thing going on there. Like all of his, all of his philosophical writing is in in the form of it's not necessarily poetry, but it's definitely it's fiction, 
right? It it's yes. all in the form of these made up dialogues. <laughs> yeah, that it, are it, the exact same thing that he w- is decrying. Right? There's a right. weird kind of contradiction there. But um, huh. but it's interesting because we began with this poetic language that he then uh, sort of decries as being uh, a poor, meaningless design, you know, a pointless sort mm-hmm. of imitation that covers the grandeur and real- the reality, right, of the thing that he's trying to describe in those first few lines. Wow. Hmm. Right, the grassy road and, and all of that. Um, and so now <laughs> you cut down to the bottom and he's also talking about a reflection Mm-hmm. Um, a reflection that is, you know, if we follow the kind of platonic <laughs> way of thinking about this, right, that is, um, is, is always deceiving, right? And he is shattering that. So it's now even more distorted, deceptive. Wow. Right? Um, and he is shattering like a bullet right through a bottle. And then this, this statement, I'm expected, it's almost like a rhetorical question, even though there's no question mark, right? It's this rhetorical, I'm expected to believe that any of this is real? Right. Question mark, right? Um, right. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so it's it's just kind of this interesting symmetry of, of kind of questioning the, uh, the efficacy, I guess, of hmm. reflection, right? The efficacy of poetic reflection of just, the, the reflection, him reflecting on himself, right. looking at himself yeah. and the kind of, um, uh, there's, you sense this sort of futility, uh, in this moment of that reflection on oneself is perhaps false, <laughs> that it's yeah. not, he's not feeling like it can, um, bring to the surface, right. Right. Uh, pun metaphor intended there, yes. uh, you know, what, what it is he he needs it to. Wow. And and depending on what version of himself you see as depicted in the water mm-hmm. versus the one that's on dry ground, what is being brought into question there has other layers of meaning. If you back up into the other versions of himself that sank under the water, mm-hmm. yeah. then if he's if he's wow. questioning that by throwing the rock through it. Yeah. That any of this, I mean, you could just be talking about the natural world and how weird it is that it looks like something's there and then it just disappears when you throw a rock at it. Right. Right. But also, if any of this could be all of that loaded image of himself under the water searching, that that is what bursts yeah, that's in this moment. Wow. Wow. Hmm. Um, I want to read another quote here and, and suggest something else this this line is doing. So here's the quote. This is from uh, Richard Brodigan's So the Wind Won't Blow It All Away. This is the book that Aaron directly references in the first verse of January 1979. Yeah. We talked about that quote, but the whole whole story is just about this one incident where this guy is reflecting on when he was a kid. Um, he had a gun um, and was was hunting with this new friend he had just made and the kid is a like super outcast awkward kid and then this this friend of his was like the most popular boy in school and they like became best pals but like it was a weird mismatch and there's a lot of just 
inane, banal stuff that happens in the book. But the central incident that Brodigan keeps bringing you back to is the tragedy that they were out hunting and the narrator, which is a, a thin veiled sort of autobiographical gloss on s- several episodes in his life, shoots and accidentally hits this friend and kills him. Mm. And mm. so in this, the, he keeps reflecting on the purchase of the bullets. And now he wishes instead of going into the one store and buying a box of bullets, he should have just gone into the store next door and bought a hamburger. And then his whole life would have been different. Um, but here, here's the quote. If I had some bullets, I could go out and shoot. I could go into the junkyard and shoot bottles and cans and any old thing that looked attractive through my sight. Or there was an old apple orchard that had rotten apples still clinging to its leafless branches. It was fun to shoot rotten apples. They exploded when a bullet hit them. Hmm. Wow. So if you load in that image, both of a, a leafless tree with rotten apples that are exploding like the reflection of his image in the water and also shooting cans and, and bottles just for sport. Again, it, in a, in a little bit of a way, it softens what in the world is he doing holding this gun in, mm-hmm. in the poetic image. And, and one way to handle that is also to back up to the song leaf and take this carnival image at the mm-hmm. end of the game with the bottleneck and the rubber ring, where even if you win, you don't win. Yes. So, so to me, yeah. this, this is like the second instance in a, in a funny sort of a way of, of being at a carnival. Now the image, I think the direct image that we're supposed to see is him sitting by the water, throwing a rock in, but by comparing it to a bullet through a bottle, he is pulling up like a shooting gallery. Yes, exactly. That's always what I've envisioned is again, a shooting gallery at a carnival, actually like yeah. sitting on a little table yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So those those images, I think, will pay off when we get to Carousel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right before the end of the album. Uh, but, but it's just another instance setting us up for that moment. Wow. And I'll just use this as another moment to plug the importance of, of talking to someone if you need help, because this concept of self-reflection, it's not self-reflection is inherently bad. I, I don't think that's the yeah. message that we want to convey. And I don't think that's the message that Aaron in real life would actually want to convey. It's more self-reflection in isolation, especially if you're getting caught on a track of these negative thoughts, this, this, yeah. these poor thoughts about yourself. So really just pointing out like you should reflect on yourself, but if you start finding things that scare you about yourself, you should talk to someone else about it too and share those reflections because more likely than that, those reflections are false. Like what you're seeing in that reflection is false. You, you, I'm glad you're here, dear listener. And I, <laughs> I hope you stay with us. Yeah. 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 Well, next time the Soviet. <laughs> oh, we're not done yet. We're not yeah, done I was going to say, is there, is there any music left? <laughs> there is, in fact, an outro to this song. Okay. The outro to this song has baffled me for a long time. When you just listen and let it go by, it just sounds like another moment where there's a compelling idea that's been shared in the lyrics and you have a moment to reflect on it. Again, that's been a pattern throughout this album. And the ending definitely does that. 
but the way that it does that is rhythmically bizarre. Has this ever caught either of you that the ending feels off kilter? Mm. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause when I try to hum the guitar part, I'm, I'm pulled back to something else with the rhythm section. It's that's fast. You like yeah. you miss a beat yes. somewhere. Right. So, so after the last line of the song, I'm expected to believe that any of this is real. There's this moment of just kind of suspended animation where it's like, okay, we're just, we're just thinking about this. And, and that moment is in four, four time, which the rest of the song has been up until this point. After a couple vamp measures in 4-4, the song drops into a different meter. So it doesn't change keys here, but it changes underlying rhythmic structure. And so we get... And it, every time you feel like you can like anticipate where the downbeat is going to be it it kicks you off your foot and you and you have to like catch your balance and, and try to keep following is that five four some of the time some of the time okay. so here's and I, and I always wondered man this sounds so random like how how does the band keep it straight like and i understand maybe like ricky back there like counting time and but how does the rest of the band stay with these random changes going between six beats and five beats yeah until i mapped it out and it's actually a fairly simple pattern. It's just it's just a non-intuitive pattern. Mm-hmm. So there's a measure of six beats, then a measure of five beats, then a measure of five beats, then a measure of six beats. So it's six, five, five, six. Um, and that hovers back and forth between e, e minor and B minor like the rest of the song has, but now it has this riff on top. Um, opening with this interesting... I don't know. To me, that's a thought-provoking interval. It's a major ninth. It's technically a dissonance, but the notes are far enough apart that it doesn't sound like it clashes too yeah, much. Right. But what we have, and there's there's four four iterations of this six five five six phrase. So you have a rhythmical structure that is itself a mirror image. You have six beats, five beats, and then it inverts five beats, six yeah, beats. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. So we have a mirror <laughs> that like it, it causes you to, it forces you to pay attention because it throws you off guard mm. when the beat changes. So we have this mirror image that keeps repeating at the end and the rhythms. And it's a weird thing to do. All the stranger, when you count up the number of beats in each metrical cycle, you get 22. It's six and five is 11, five and six is 11 again. In light of the talk about guns that we've just had, I don't think it's insignificant that we have a 22-beat cycle that is Mm. the way that this song chooses to reflect until it's over. Wow. Wow. Well, next time, the Soviet. (laughs) 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 That's holy crap. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just, oh, man, I don't even know how to follow that up. Nope. That is fascinating. I think the rest of the band is on to it. Yes. Yeah. Well, we... Oh, man. We have to assume that because we know that from the liner notes of A to B Life. Like, Ricky was influencing guitar parts. Like, it's not like everyone was Mm -hmm. writing in silos. Like, the band was making decisions very consciously. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, it's not intuitive to say, oh, let's just let's just do a 22 beat cycle. Let's repeat that a few times. No, not at all. Like, that is very planned. Very planned. Um, Specifically with the 6556. Five, yeah. Up. So it is it is both both a reference to a to a common bullet gauge, I guess. Yep. I don't know anything about guns, uh, but also it's a mirror image. So we've just had this mirror his own face and then his face in the water. We've had a mirror shaped song that is a perfect symmetry from the way the verses and the choruses work with that, that interlude in the middle. And we're now at the middle point of the album about to hit the reverse. We're going to mirror back out the other direction. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. There's no way there's not some significance to that. Like, like that's, that's <laughs> incredible. Wow. Yeah. Um, the one question that we haven't answered and that I certainly have no clue yeah. on is why this song is called seven sisters. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> next time, the now Soviet. Next time. Now, next yes, time. The Soviet. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. This helps us grow the community and get more folks into everyone's favorite band, Me Without You. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Us Without Them Pod, and also join the Facebook group Us Without Them Podcast, where we'll continue any conversations, get fan reactions, things of that nature, and you'll be interacting with Stephen, Joel, and myself, Nick. You can also follow us on Twitter at Us Without Them, and be sure to share us on your favorite platforms to get the word out even more. If you have any longer comments, feedback, pushback anything of that nature feel free to email us questions and comments at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com you can also call us at 405 foxes 05 that's 405-369-3705 and you may hear your voice on a future episode also be sure to visit our website uswithoutthempod.com where you'll find episode descriptions, blog posts, and show notes that include links to books that we reference, other music that we reference, and anything of that nature that may be helpful to you. Bye, and see you next time for our conversation about the Soviet.